When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Wealthy on America, Chemi. As we start 2024, we remember so many bad predictions about what happened in 2023. We didn't expect that banks were going to fail, and yet they did. We saw some of the biggest failures in American history happen last year, and the outlook looks a little murky again for 2024. What's going to happen? Are we going to see more bank failures? What's the government's role in this? What's the Fed's role in this? What's happening with Fannie and Freddie? Interest rates, mortgages, they're all connected. There's a lot to discuss. So I'm bringing on one of the industry's foremost experts on banks, on finance. Chris Whalen is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, thank you so much for, for spending some time with me today. No, my pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, too. And, and so when you start the year... You know, I know before we, we before we just got on, you said you were working on on some Basel comments. Tell me about that. That sounds that sounds almost as exciting as doing this podcast with me. Well, I started my career as an analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and I worked with a lot of mortgage lenders and banks. And the current proposal on raising capital yet again on banks is so out of alignment with the way the markets are today, Eric. It's almost as though they wound the clock back to 2012 when they decided to issue new capital rules. And, you know, what's the issue today that we're facing uh, in 2024 is how much volatility are we going to see in markets? If you think about it, the volatility from the Fed raising interest rates 600 basis points in a year uh, almost tipped over a lot of banks. It tipped over Silicon Valley Bank. The others failed for other reasons, but the high rates didn't help, right? Um, so that's really but first is that the and Fed's fault? Is that the Fed's fault? Because it's only yeah. like a couple banks failed and we have thousands of banks. So it wasn't like the Fed a did thousand too much. banks failed, you know? You know, the progressives who populate the Federal Reserve Board, there aren't any conservatives working there, Eric. You know that, right? Is I that true? I, the, I did not know that. I, I no, they, that there'd be a they mix. don't entertain, keen, you know, even classical liberal economics is too conservative for the board. They are full-blown kind of New Deal uh, liberals who believe in government and they believe in spending money. And so what did they do wrong? They did too much. And then Congress piled on with another trillion dollars worth of spending, loan forgiveness, all sorts of things. And that's why we don't have a recession today. There's still so much liquidity sloshing around in the system that default rates, for example, on credit cards, on mortgages, are still pretty low. It's incredible, but that's why we haven't had that classical recession that everybody was looking for last year. You just said so much there. I want I want to break it all down one by one. I, I tried to keep notes along the way. That's all. I did not realize that the Fed is is totally progressive because don't they have Republicans that nominate them? Aren't they represented yeah. by the banks? Then you think that's a conservative kind of industry uh, kind of person, right? No, since the New Deal, really, America's been a kind of hybrid socialist market economy. Um, The degree of government intervention has only grown, as you know, and the size of the federal deficit. Uh, But the Fed itself is really a New Deal organization, especially the Board of Governors, which wasn't created until 1926. 
It's a Washington bureaucracy. And as you know so well, Eric, it's become a media circus. I mean, the board was never intended to have this central role in economic decision-making, right? But as soon as they started targeting Fed funds instead of inflation and employment, they became the center of attention. So I, you know, as a former Fed employee and someone who follows the central bank closely, I would hope one day the chairman is going to tell his colleagues not to appear on television so much and to reflect the consensus of the committee. And if they don't like the consensus, they should resign. You know, that's the way most democracies work, but ours does not. So, you know. But isn't, but isn't healthy debate good? Don't you want to say, okay, we know you voted unanimously, but you don't think unanimously. I want to hear differing points of view. Isn't it good that the market hears that there's no. debate internally? No, because we have plenty of economists who work for big buy side firms doing that. Okay. You want to be part of that crowd? Then don't work for the government. But I think the government has to reflect the consensus of the committee. Otherwise, we confuse people. How can they weight the different opinions they hear and the dot plots and everything else versus the opinion of the chairman who should reflect the consensus of the committee? And they should publish the votes. They should publish the minutes. You know what I mean? But still, I think it's ineffective from a public policy perspective if you want to communicate with the markets in a rational way to have all these people all over the media whenever they want. I don't think that's helpful. If I was at the Fed, believe me, I'd go back to the Greenspan era. And I would rotate the chairmanship of the Federal Open Market Committee, too, by the way. I would let each one of the governors play spokesman. Why not? You know, it's good training for them. <laughs> is it fair to say that you were disgusted by what you saw working at the Fed? Because you, what you're saying is, is, is you know, pretty heated in terms of, I don't like how it functions. If I was in charge, I'd do something completely different. What they're doing isn't great for America. And, and there's not a lot of diversity of thought there. It sounds like you didn't love your time there and you're at least speaking from the outside, right? You're not complaining from the inside. No, you're an I outsider love, looking at it. I love the institution. I worked for Paul Volcker and Jerry Corgan, two great public servants who cleaned up a lot of other people's messes, by the way, particularly Jerry Corrigan. Um, and I think that, you know, we, this, it, it changed in 2008. We came so close to literally falling off the edge of the table. As a couple of friends of mine said, Chris, we were all broke for a year, which, you know, the assets we owned weren't worth anything. That experience scared people so much that I think it made the Fed change and they became much more of a fiscal organization and much less of an independent central bank. I think the Fed's independence is gone. You know, read Simon White in Bloomberg, by the way, he's very good. And he makes this point, which is when the debt gets so big and the Fed has to be worried first and foremost about keeping the Treasury market open more than anything else they worry about. Right. You don't have any independence anymore. You know, right. Janet Yellen is calling the shots when she issued lots of T-bills this year that helped Chair Powell get rid of his reverse RP backlog at the Fed. So this this relationship between the markets on the one hand which we came and saved, right? And we provided all the liquidity they need, all the collateral they need whenever they ask, right? That's the way the Fed has been since 2008. Could they say no, Eric? You know, what do you think? You think they could say no if the markets were short collateral next week? No. Yeah, I think it, 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 puts, them, it puts them in a tricky spot, right? So, yeah. but, but the idea that, like you said earlier, and we hear a lot of people say this, it's the Fed that caused these banks to fail. But- but 
I could believe that if it was like a thousand banks failed and, and they were doing the right thing, but could you make the argument, well, only a couple of banks failed, everyone else didn't fail. Mm -hmm. So those banks were doing something egregiously bad, egregiously wrong. Yeah. That's why they failed. It's not like- everyone... I don't disagree with that. Silicon Valley, which I figure prominently in my comments to the Fed for next week, um, screwed up. You don't put 40% of your assets in mortgage-backed securities in a falling rate environment. <laughs> These people should go to jail. But on the other hand, a lot of people in the industry have taken some big hits even if they're not close to failure, okay? Those assets that are trading at 75 or 80 cents on the dollar today, the money's gone, Eric. The bank will have diminished earnings over time because they kept those assets. Big example, Bank America. Brian Moynihan's gross yield on his book is three quarters of a point below peer group one. And that's because he kept all those twos and two and a halfs and threes that they wrote during that period. He should have sold them and bought T-bills. He could have sold those loans for 104. Why didn't and he though? What's the thought process there? Because it seems obvious to you, right? They like keeping those assets historically. And this goes back to what I said when we started, volatility. What has the Fed done to our markets in pursuit of Humphrey Hawkins? It has increased volatility in the markets. And when you look at the size of the deficit and the amount of debt we have to roll every year now, that's also going to contribute. We're going to rehabilitate the concept of crowding out. Remember how the economists tried to get rid of that one? No, no, the treasury is crowding out other activity now because the deficits are so big. My fear for this year, by the way, what am I really worried about is that the yield curve is gonna normalize. Eventually they'll cut rates, so the short-term rates will go down, but the long end of the curve will go up because Janet Yellen has such big deficits that she has to finance. Right, because right now, obviously, twos, tens, you know, for people watching or listening, twos, yeah. tens is inverted. Two-year yeah. yield is higher than the 10-year yield. And that usually means, or I don't know if it's usually or always, that there's a recession coming, right? Well, it's a salad bowl that's turned upside down on the kitchen counter, okay? And, you know, the, the, the financing part of the economy, when you think of new loans or any kind of new activity, it finances off the short end of the curve. So Fed funds figure five plus. But the long end is where the economy raises long-term capital for new companies and right. all sorts of activities. That's what's so interesting to me, because if we end up normalizing interest rates for the first time in 20 years, okay, and end up having a normal curve where Fed funds is, say, in the high threes, the mid fours, and stays there for a while, think about how the markets are going to change. Imagine if we could actually have stable rates going forward. That would be an enormous change. In a good way or in a bad way? Oh, good way. I think it would settle a lot of things down. Might not be so good for people who raised cheap money two years ago who have to refinance. You know, there's crazy stuff going on. You have a lot of new companies that came out in 2021 who've had to refinance debt. And so what they do is they keep the coupon the same, but they sell the debt at, you know, 80. <laughs> and eventually they're going to have to pay for that because they'll redeem the, the notes at par. But the point is, is that the change in interest rates has forced a lot of people to make some difficult adjustments and it's ongoing. Did I hear you right though? You said your fear this year is that the yield curve will get back to normal, but then isn't that a good thing or why is that a fear? It's a good thing for the economy and the markets, but it implies a change in the cost of capital that is, let's just say, not what people had top of mind a year ago. Even when the Fed was 
and saying, hey, we've got to raise rates to fight inflation, right? Most people were still thinking about the past decade of accommodative policy of very low short-term rates and really an economy that was kind of sort of moving. You know, the mortgage industry didn't come back until 2018, really, in terms of volumes. So, you know, if we end up with a normal curve, I think over time that's great. Um, it's going to be difficult for the federal government because they do have to issue some long-term debt. They can't just issue T-bills. One of the biggest acts of idiocy by the Treasury over the last several decades was to say, oh, we should fund everything short. All right, if you have small deficits, that's great. But when you have the kind of deficits of, you know, this society of ours has incurred, uh, that's going to get to be very interesting. Yeah, it, it, it's going to get it's going to get interesting. Are, how concerned are you? With the size of the debt, the size of these deficits, the idea that interest rates all of a sudden at five percent long term, the government can't even afford the interest payments at five percent, no. let alone paying down the debt. Right? No, like, you're you're where, absolutely right. Where do you see this whole ecosystem? Are we are we all headed for this ticking time bomb? Everyone says it's coming, but it could be fifty years from now. Right? We might be all dead before it happens, but someone's got to pay this bill at some point. Well, effectively, we're going to repeal the Humphrey Hawkins law. And the Fed will have to run the economy hot. Tell, tell what does that law? What does that law mean for people who don't know? Well, it basically was after the war. The Democrats were pushing for guaranteed employment for all Americans, mostly for soldiers. And the compromise said, well, the Fed is going to target full employment on the one hand and price stability on the other hand. And there was a third mandate about long-term stable interest rates, which we never talk about. Everybody forgets that third mandate. They always talk about <laughs> the dual mandate, but they write three uh, mandates. Yeah, but that's the most important one because you know keeping markets relatively stable and boring is a good thing, both for incomes and for employment, because it lets people plan. When you don't know what's going to happen two, three months from now, it's difficult to plan an organization and right. a capital. So anyway, but you know, I, I think, I, I guess what I'm saying is that you will see an economy that is very different from the one we've had. And, you know, we price 30-year mortgages off the 10-year treasury. It should be more like the 15-year treasury right now. Uh, but still, that's where that gets done. So if we end up with the 10-year, say, at five and a half to six, which I think is very possible, then we're talking about 8% mortgages. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. People will go in the floaters to lower their monthly payment. Uh, they'll do a lot of other things, but I think that's a very different world from what the Fed did after 2008, when they basically threw away the rule book, opened the doors and financed everything and anything that needed to be financed, right? Uh, the home loan banks were there, Ginny May was there, they were all working to provide liquidity to markets that had stopped. You know, we literally stopped between end of 2008 and really 2010. Um, and it was, I was working uh, for distressed servicer at that point. And that was quite a place to be at the time. That's how I learned all about mortgages, by the way. Nothing like working in the engine room to figure out what's happening. Right, right. So then, if they repeal the law, like you said, if they repeal Humphrey Hawkins, what does that do to how the Fed behaves? And then what does that mean for end consumers and companies? I think to your question about debt, they'll have to run the economy hot. In other words, we'll have to tolerate a three or four or five percent inflation rate. Uh, we will look a lot more like the Latin nations of the 1970s and the 1980s or even Argentina today. Because when the fiscal balance gets so far out of line 
um, not only do you have to attack it, you have to you know, freeze spending and really start focusing it, but you have to use inflation to diminish the real value of the debt. And that's what they're going to do. It's effectively a default. We just take a little bit of money from you every year. You know? right. we, don't wipe you out. we don't wipe you out in one day. We wipe uh, you out over 20 years. And, and I think it's inevitable because the U.S. is going to pay their bills. You know, going back to the Civil War when we created greenbacks to, to finance the war uh, between the states, uh, one way or another, we're going to finance the country. But the value of the dollar may suffer. And that's uh, that's something else to think about. So that time. happens then. Two questions. Where do you put your money? Where do you, you know, where do you invest? Is it you know hard assets? Is it just you know nominal based stock market? Where do you invest? And then number two, what does that mean for the reserve currency, reserve status of the United States? Well, we'll do the first one first. The reserve yeah. status of the United States is a function of the fact that the currency is large and liquid. Um, so oil, commodities, big things can be funded with dollar payments. Most other currencies aren't big enough to accommodate those kinds of trade and commercial flows. As long as the currency is relatively stable, people will use it to pay for things, but they're not going to use it as a store of value. They will continue to use it as a unit of account, but they will increasingly keep assets elsewhere to avoid the inflation, right? So, you know, I'm not that worried about the role of the dollar in terms of commerce, but I am worried that people aren't going to want to hold our debt. And they're going to demand a higher yield to do so. How high? How high? How, what do you what do you foresee? Well, look, I I worked years ago in Mexico during the debt crisis. Okay, and in that case, the central bank and you see this all over the world had to defend the spot rate for the currency. Argentina's in this situation right. now. If they don't raise the rate, people don't want to take one day risk in the currency. Now, years ago. When I was a little younger, we used to actually worry about debt and treasury auctions and inflation. There was a time when the dollar used to get kicked around quite a lot. Um, then we got to be so big and we inflated our, our economy so much that we kind of had this sense that we could do whatever we wanted. So I think what I look for is when treasury gets into a defensive position again. And you saw this back in October, November, because treasury wanted to issue more long-term debt. Uh, but the dealers apparently went back to Secretary Yellen and said, no, you're not going to get it at the yield you want. And so they issued more T-bills and they changed the allocation that the committee had recommended for Treasury. That makes me a little nervous because, you know, if we don't have three bids for every dollar of debt that we sell, we have a problem. Does it need to be three bids? Can it be two, two and a half, one and a half? Does it need to be three? X? As long as there's more bids than, than what three is good. Lots of retail too, please. You know, right. <laughs> it's right. just like an IPO. There's, right. there's no difference. You want lots of bidders, and and that's always been the case with the U.S. Not remember the guys who fund treasury auctions are a bunch of hedge funds doing the right. basis trade. It's not like all these investors line up that day and say, "Yeah, I'll take the bonds," and I'm not going to ever trade them ever again. No, right? It's not okay. treasury direct retail here. That's not what we're no. doing. Yeah. But eventually, it gets put away. These securities right. have to be sold by somebody. People always forget that part. Um, so that's how it works. And the composition of the buyers of treasuries has changed over the year. Uh, it's not just the Bank of Japan and the Bank of China. It's all sorts of people. So we always have to be sensitive to that. Uh, whether you're selling treasury bonds or Ginnie Mae's, the government has to be 
uh, uh, sensitive to how investors view us. And since we're now a double A plus credit, uh, even though Moody's hasn't acted yet, I think, you know, it, it, it's all only only down from here, Eric. And I think that over time, we're going to have to revisit how we think about things like ratings. Is the sovereign always going to be the top of the scale when it comes to ratings? You know, is Apple a better credit than the United right. States? Right. right. Are you better <laughs> off with a random company that doesn't have the power it. of taxation, that doesn't have a military? Is that actually a better credit than one that does have a military and tax power? No, I think the military and tax power is what really backs the currency. So then it goes back like to your credit rating. rating thing. Then then should Apple or Microsoft or whoever be a higher rating than the U.S. government? Maybe not. Right. You know, or Google merges with Amazon and takes over the world. Then it's the robot army coming to get all of us, right? <laughs> no, I, I, I was so pleased to see the New York Times suing all the uh, the AI guys. That's that's precious. Let's let's. I want to get into that in a second too, but I want to be, get back to that other question. So in a world where we're going to see this, let's say three to four percent inflation for a couple of decades to default over time, let's say, and maybe bond yields are higher, so you know bond funds go down. So. What does that mean for that classic 60-40 portfolio? What does that mean for where do you put money in a world that is inflationary? Is it is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it just the stock market because it'll just move up on inflation numbers? Is it real estate? Like, What do you do? Or either what is Chris Whalen doing with his money or what are you telling friends and family to do with theirs? Well, what I tell my friends and my clients is that I think you have to always uh, be focused on real assets. Uh, first and foremost, that are located well. In other words, you don't just want to buy real estate. You want to buy real estate that's relevant and has practical use. Okay, That's what we're learning today about cities post-COVID. There are some lovely pieces of real estate in the cities that have lost their use case. So we really don't know what to do with them. We talk about converting offices in the resi, but that's very expensive and very difficult to do. Uh, stocks, obviously, because stocks are going to tend to ride on top of the water in terms of inflation. It's just, it's where historically people have been able to hide from inflation. Debt, no. Uh, other things, well, you know, I'd leave that up to consenting adults. I'm not a big fan of crypto. I, I, I'd rather speculate with stocks or roll dice. You know, I, <laughs> I think it's more fun uh, because most of my friends in crypto are former poker players and derivatives traders. That seems to be the MO for that particular activity. Uh, you know, alternative currencies? Nah. No, I, I think, unfortunately, the world is going to consolidate around currencies more and more uh, because that's just the way the, uh, the world system is headed. You're going to have a couple of big blocks with the Chinese and the Russians probably together. And then you're going to have a very large block focused on the U.S. and Europe and miscellaneous others, you know. Uh, that's just the way it's going to go. Look at the Chinese. They don't want to take over the role of the dollar as a means of exchange. They can't even control their own economy. Uh, the last thing they need is to become the means of exchange for the entire world. Can you imagine? Uh, the Bank of China would collapse. So Why, why would that happen? Explain. It's you know, they're they're too small. Way too small. When we started limiting the access of Chinese firms in the U.S. to doing public listings here, remember? Uh, where did they go? They went to Hong Kong. They tried to go to Switzerland. The Swiss said no. Um, they looked around Europe, but there aren't any really big markets out there that are easily accessed by foreign issuers like Chinese companies, and they don't have a great track record anyway. 
So to attract uh, foreign capital, especially big institutional money, is, is hard. That's why the U.S. is still such an attractive market with all of the regulations and all of the anti-money laundering and other misery that we put foreigners through in this country. It's still the best place in the world to raise money. So are you bearish or are you bullish? In no, terms I'm, of I'm bullish on inflation. I, I have to reissue my 2010 book, Inflated. We obviously have to add a chapter or two. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how far we've gone even since then. Like, we thought it was bad then. Now, now imagine now. The world is about layers of leverage. Okay, right. Economies don't generally create enough opportunity for all of its people. So in order to kind of fudge it, we use inflation and we use a lot of debt. Um, look at China's Belt and Road policy. They're basically trying to get rid of surplus humans who they send offshore. They don't want them to come home, by the way. And they build projects that are marginally economic. Maybe, oh, they send them to random other countries. Like they, oh, so the Chinese government everywhere. sends Chinese workers that they everywhere. don't want in China to go build things in Africa and Latin America everywhere. that nobody needs. You got it. And it's a political, it's a way to release political pressure. And it also creates nominal growth in the economy, nominal utilization of people, right? But are they really creating wealth in China? I would argue no. The communist diktats that they use to make economic decisions are as bad as the decisions that Joe Biden makes. Look, look at the whole thing with electric cars, a technology that's still not quite ready. You realize, I wrote about this in my Ford book, you realize that they were making electric cars 100 years ago? And they really yeah. wanted to. But the tech was just not there. And even today with more efficient motors, they're extraordinarily efficient compared to the old days. And better batteries. The gas gas engine yeah. cars are very efficient. There's much oh, less emission now than they used to be a generation yes. ago. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. New, so what's the answer? Hybrids. It turns out that Toyota was right. One of my favorite stocks. I love Toyota. They're boring as hell but they're very focused and they're very, very good at uh, execution. Where, where do I go with that? Because you mentioned the, the electric car thing and, it, and you mentioned China. Hmm. Yeah, well, the, it's just an example of state-directed right. e economic growth. It does right. not oftentimes result in positive outcomes. But we're getting that here now, right? It's oh, going to yeah. be, oh, this state decided we're going to ban all fossil fuel-based cars. <laughs> we're going to ban this. So oh, no. we can't get there economically. So we're just going to make it illegal even though the market mm. dynamics, people don't want it at these prices and at these reliability. Eventually, levels. everyone's going to leave California and move to Texas. And then what are they going to do? You know, and Texas will kick them out. We don't want you here. saying in the mortgage industry, anywhere but California, ABC. And Is that reason, true? Oh, yeah. Because the people that you want are in California, but you can't afford to employ them in California because the cost is so high. So they all move to Texas or Florida where the cost is a third. It's crazy. But they're getting expensive. Florida's getting expensive. Texas oh, yeah. is getting expensive. Oh, yeah. Well, insurance. Can't get a, a, a homeowner's insurance in Florida now because of the weather and right. the growth. A lot of the underwriters have just said, nope, don't want to do this anymore. And so I have friends who've been there for decades who are moving north. <laughs> Come back to New York. I think that's great. That would be that would be quite the the irony, right? It's like okay, everyone from Florida and Texas, they're new, they're moving back to New York, New Jersey, and well, Connecticut. Well, the secret is they all come here in the summer because it's too damn hot in Dallas. I, I go down to Texas once or twice a month, so trust me, it gets warm. It gets real warm real fast down there. Oh God, yeah. I'm, no. I'm looking at gray skies. It's wet. 
It's rainy. All the leaves have fallen off the branches here in the Northeast. There's, there's not a lot of life up here yeah. in January in the Northeast, but it is, it is what it is. You know, it's funny because you think New York City is expensive. Then all of a sudden you look at Florida and Texas and California. Like, I thought New York was expensive. Geez, these places are even worse. Then you add on yes. the insurance and all these other things. It's not a great deal. And it's a la carte, so you don't get any deals. Um, I think what you're seeing in the South is a great deal of overbuilding because a lot of investors and developers did not like what they see in states like New York with the political situation. The rent control legislation, by the way, is another fiasco in New York. Uh, so they went down to Texas and the Carolinas and everywhere else, built a lot of commercial. And what's fascinating, Eric, is that these new properties are actually driving out the old ones. People look at that brand new building down in Florida and they don't want the B or C office space down the road. So all of that's going to go. Well, the stuff that was oh. built in the 90s or the yeah. 2000s, like, why am I here? Yeah. There's a brand new thing across the street. So, you know, it's good and bad, but I think you are going to see a bit of a retrenchment in Texas over the next couple of years. They got to slow down. There's just not enough uh, demand to absorb. I mean, go to some place like South Lake, west of Dallas, uh, kind of between Dallas and Fort Worth. And that's all mortgage people, by the way. Uh, and the amount of development and malls and restaurants and everything is just out of control. You think uh, it's too much? You think it's unsustainable? Yeah. I do. I think I think they have uh, exceeded the amount of short-term demand. And it's going to be like we've seen in the past. They're going to have to consolidate and restructure some of these things. Uh, but long-term, are they going to absorb it? Yeah. Oh, damn, yeah. You know, Texas is uh, the fastest-growing part of the U.S. economy. So you think there may be some developments that implode financially, but yeah. as a general rule, the state will be able to, there's just so much space there, there's so much room to grow, even if some overdeveloped sites kind of lose their shirt. Stuff that made sense at really low interest rates in 2020 may not make sense now. And also you've just built too much, you, you know, you run out of tenants and customers. What I've noticed down in Texas is downtown's empty, just like all the other big cities now. Uh, the assets in downtown are definitely underutilized. And then most of the growth and the activities moved out to the burbs, which have been growing like a house of fire for the past couple of years. But they have probably overdone it, too. So we're going to definitely see, uh, I think, a little bit of a slowdown in development uh, in those markets. And same thing with Miami. You, you see the same thing in Miami. Uh, there's been just a huge surge of investment, both traditional developers who were always in Florida and a lot of people from outside the state just showed up with money. So, yeah, a lot of people have showed up with money in, into Miami and Florida for sure. So, you know, going back to your question about, um, you know, the markets and banks. Right. What I've seen in my group over the past couple of months, which is fascinating, at first everybody was positioned for kind of a recession and banks were trading at a deep discount. Um, you had people in the fintech space like Affirm and Upstart and even Coinbase uh, kind of bouncing last uh, this past year because of you know, just a variety of factors. But now all of a sudden we're talking about rate cuts and how the economy is going to be fine. These stocks haven't moved one way or another. Um, the banks have uh, surged recently. I'm writing a note about the top 10 uh, for next week. And who's at the top of the list but Customers Bank Corp, a little bank from Pennsylvania. And why? Um, Never heard of them. Did a lot of PPP lending. He's run by a very astute guy who uh, uh, was at Commerce Bank years ago and then sold to, uh, you know, the big guys. And then he went out and started this new bank, JCDU. 
and he's, you know, he's a good operator. They were pursuing that same clientele that Signature Bank used to pursue, the small to mid-sized businesses in New York, uh, asset management. They do all sorts of things. But his performance in the fourth quarter is going to be quite good. And he was just galloping along. Now, mind you, he's just barely above book. This was a stock that was trading at half a book value a year ago. Um, but then Capital One also came on. They bounced because everybody says no recession. That stock was trading at half a book. City, my God, has started moving, uh, largely because uh, Jane uh, Frazier has been, you know, cutting expenses quite a lot and getting rid of some. They're going to get rid of the whole company. All the employees are going to be gone at this rate. They they should merge with Goldman. I've always said this. Why do I say that? You merge the investment bank. You let the boys run the broker dealer, okay? You have a much bigger bank. You have real deposits, okay, that adds stability to the post-merger entity. You have the payments platform, global payments, which is probably worth as much as the entire company today, if you look at the market cap. And then you have the subprime book, which has saved the city going back 30, 40 years. Big yields. The defaults at times can be a problem, but overall they make money. So, you know, I think it would be a fascinating um, idea because both Goldman and City are kind of left out. They don't have a big asset management business, Eric. You know, City sold their business to Morgan Stanley. Look at Morgan Stanley. They're head-to-head with UBS now. They are the two winners among the asset what do you gatherers. Think about, what do you think about, you know, Citigroup doing massive layoffs, Goldman struggling, they're just dumping the whole consumer business. You mentioned buy now, pay later. Uh-huh. That's taking off in, in terms of people like, I don't want to deal with credit cards. I do buy now, pay later. Those all to me look like signs of weakness, right? It looks like just general yeah. industry economic weakness. Do you see it in that way? Or do you think rate cuts are going to save all this? Or is it bigger than rate cuts? No, they, in terms of these two franchises, they have a fundamental problem, which is what do I do when I grow up? Okay, if I don't have a real asset management business as kind of an anchor, and if I don't have a really first tier capital markets business as another leg of the stool, right? And then I need that bank that makes money. It doesn't have to hit it out of the park, but it's got to at least be, you know, right at the peer group in, in terms of asset and equity returns. That to me is a business that can survive. But if you look at them now, they're both two legged stools. Two-legged stools are unstable, as we know. You know, it's called a <laughs> a bicycle. So I worry about that because look at their peers. BA, Wells, both big domestic banks, not so much Wall Street exposure. You know, Merrill, Merrill's not a big program trader. They're not a big derivative shop. So it's really Goldman and Morgan Stanley now that dominate that side of the business. City, second-rate, you know, investment bank. They've been fading for years for a lot of reasons. Um, so what do you do with that long term if it ends up being the subprime consumer book, which has only got half core deposits underneath it, by the way? You have this still, you know, foreign business, mostly upstairs banking, private banking, that kind of thing. You know, it's it's not a it's not an obvious it, it's not a business you would build today that way, Eric, is the way. Right. You know, City's a legacy of the past. They were in all the right places during the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, great 80s company. My mom worked for a company, a small little bank, mm-hmm. and she had some stock from that bank, and then it got bought by 10 other banks along the way, yes. and it became Citigroup stock. But this is like an 80s job she had in the 80s that, that became the Citigroup yeah. stock. 
But they, you know, remember, they were the first bank in the United States to offer subprime mortgages in the 80s. Okay. Right. Innovative stuff back then. No doc mortgages, in, and they offered it globally. I'm, I'm working on another book, and it's just, I, I was at the Fed at the time, and I, I, I kind of remembered it, and I thought, no, did they really offer that product in Japan? And yes, they did. And they got annihilated. <laughs> uh, it was like credit card loans for a house. And there was no credit reporting system in any of these countries. You couldn't find these people. Just right? ask for the money. We'll give you the money and we'll no. help you pay it back. No. So, but, you know, it, they, they tried. They were the, the first foreign bank in China. Right. right. They ago. were the global. They were the real true global leaders at the time. So what, when you think about rate cuts, do you think that's a good thing? Do you think it's just a necessary thing? The Fed's just going to have to cut rates because you said, they just need to keep this inflation going. They need to keep the economy hot. Are we even going to see 5% you know, policy rates anytime again once they bring it back down? Well, we're not going to go back down to where we were in 2020. Right. That's like you said, maybe it's like three, maybe three or four. I, th I think three and a half to four and a half is a reasonable rate. Three and a half if you have a recession. I think the board has learned that they didn't get a lot of bang for the buck below 3%. It's not clear, other than in housing, that the rest of the economy really, uh, you know, got that much more incremental but help. Three is so close to zero that, and at least it, it, you get the benefit of a very low rate without the the extreme negative externality yeah. of bizarre behavior that happens when it's zero. Well, that's right. And you know, when they saw money market funds, and then they saw the problems with banks. I think a number of people at the Fed are a little chastened by that experience. They don't like having to have the FDIC publishing charts that shows that the industry is insolvent. And, you know, I hope going forward, we're going to see maybe a, a rate cut this year and a couple next year, and that should be it. This economy is not doing badly at current rates. So if you got Fed funds back to four, leave it there. What hope do you that say there isn't something that causes you to change it. Let's put it that way. What, what do you say to people who are nervous about buying here at the top at all time highs on, on the major indices generally? Is that mm -hmm. is that a place you want to be buying? Are you looking at a big drop in 2024? Where where are you positioned at? You know, let's say you get you get a bonus mm -hmm. at the end of the year, right? Or the January bonus. You get you mm -hmm. know new savings. Are you supposed to put it in stocks at all time highs when when there's still a lot of nervousness? Well, I'll give you my own uh, portfolio. I'm about 60% fixed income and bank preferreds, which I like to buy when there's blood in the street. You know, buying a, a $25 preferred at 18 always makes me happy. Um, and then I own a little bit of New York Community Bank. I'm starting to accumulate wells. Those are my only two common holdings. Uh, and then on the tech side, I, I traditionally have had a lot of NVIDIA. I used to cover semiconductor capital equipment years ago. And um, I took a lot of money off the table once I got above 400 because I had a ridiculous gain. It was too big for my portfolio. And then it went to 500. I know. It's okay. But I, I still have a, a, you know, a pretty good chunk. And I yeah. was like, okay. But you know what we've seen is certain sectors have performed really well. And in sectors like financials, no. Uh, fintechs, as we talked about before, have gone crazy. And yet, if you take a look at a stock like a firm, look at where it was five years ago. That 400% gain in the last 12 months is nothing compared right. to where that stock was. Whereas so, like companies that drop 90%, yeah. they drop 90%, so you go from 100 to 10, then you go from 10 <laughs> to 20. It's like, That's oh, right. they doubled. It's like, no, they're still down 80%.
So the question, you know, back to your question, right, is are stocks a good place to hide from inflation? And the answer is that depends. Um, if it's inflation caused by a real externality like COVID, you know, I think that was one of the more interesting opportunities you're going to see because it was so clearly unexpected and it caused right. such right. distortions that if you could keep your nerve, uh, you made a lot of money. I got out of bank commons in the beginning of 20. As soon as I saw Fed funds heading to zero, I thought, uh-huh, because we assumed that we were going to have a credit event. It didn't happen. We had to give all that money back the following year. So it distorted bank earnings dramatically for 18 months. We're still messing with that. Uh, so today, are they cheap now? The, the banks, you know, JP Morgan at 1.7 times book is not particularly cheap. That's my benchmark. You, that, that's your benchmark. You mentioned. Well, I have two. I have Amy and then I have Ginny May threes. When I get up in the morning, the first thing I want to know is where are Ginny May threes? Right now, they're about 88. That's not too bad. Right. They were at a 30 point discount before. So if you're a banker and you're looking to restructure your portfolio, now is a good time to do it. Take the pain, sell those bonds and go buy something with a 6% yield or a 7% yield. What do you think about, as you mentioned, you know, Ginny Mae makes me think about like Fannie and Freddie. Do you think they should you know, get out of conservatorship, go back to buying no. mortgages, buying MBS, and then start kind of going back to the old world? Or are you like where things are right now? No, the government has killed any possibility that Fannie and Freddie could ever come out of conservatorship. They are totally postal now. Um, the people from the industry who were there, who were hoping that they would come out of conservatorship during Trump, uh, have largely departed. And, you know, the politics during the Biden administration, unfortunately, has not been helpful. Uh, the, the politics at Fannie and Freddie, in terms of their willingness to work with people in the industry, uh, the cash window, for example, has become a joke. You go in there to buy, uh, sell loans, and they start beating you up because you haven't made enough uh, loans to low-income households. The whole, the whole tenor of the place is, is wrong, Eric. And, and think of it this way. I often try to remind my friends in Washington who have no idea about finance. Fannie and Freddie are penny Mac with an insurance company. In other words, they not only are an issuer that sells mortgage-backed securities, you know, they buy loans, obviously, but they also own the servicing on all of those assets and they insure the loans. They're like, you know, uh, one of the private mortgage insurers. That's a complicated business. Right. You, you cannot run that business without a government rating. The a moment you're, yeah. yeah, the moment you're a single A issuer, which is what would happen to Fannie if they came out of conservatorship, Moody's would downgrade them a full notch. Um, they'd fail. Then you're toast. Yeah. So they're, they're sort of stuck. Okay. Well, Jamie's a double A. Come on. Right. He's the biggest mortgage servicer in the United States. Give me a break. <laughs> Why do you think he's in that business, by the way? You know, Bank America ran out of that business. Wells is leaving now. Jamie's not going anywhere. He loves that business. Why is he? So why is he making that decision? The others aren't. Because they're mostly prime conventional loans or jumbos that they could okay. sell to Fannie and Freddie. He doesn't do any Ginny May. Won't have anything to do with the government loan market, which is smart. So, you know, it's, it's, it's his customers. These are prime loans, 720 FICO scores. No problems. Right. right. Different, different kind of, yeah, different kind of ballgame there. Then then um, you made me think about something as you were as you were saying, oh yeah. So we think about the big banks. You mentioned some of these regional ones, like the Pennsylvania one. You, are the regional banks 
a value trap? Do you want to just stay with big banks versus regionals? Because you're no. getting different government treatment depending on size, right? Different You've got to do your homework. Um, what I would tell you is if you're looking at banks, first thing you got to do is go pull up their performance report on the Fed website. It's called the National Information Center. And just pull it up. It's a bunch of statistics. But you want to see if they have a big mark-to-market loss, uh, other comprehensive income. If that is a negative number, you want to know how big it is relative to their uh, capital. And you want small. You want something that's less than 20%. And then you want to look at their real estate exposure. How much are they into commercial? Because commercial is the pain point right now. The bank-owned residential mortgages that we were just talking about, they're, they have negative default rates right now. We're not going to worry about them for at least another year or two. I, I think the reset in residential mortgages won't come till 27 or 28. So we've got a couple of years of boom and bust ahead of us. Commercial is today. And those stories are all idiosyncratic. They're all over the place. It's chop salad. You could have a building that's great right next to a building that's not great. And right, so, it's you know, it's not about the city, the state. It could literally be just like the same block. No, right? no, it street. is about this. If it's a blue uh, city, be careful. Okay. Okay. The Democrats have managed to destroy urban real estate values. New York City is the classic, but San Fran too, uh, Chicago, uh, God help us. So all San Francisco, of the- San Francisco though is the is the home of you know the tech scene and da da da. Like, do you see? No, in the valley. The tech- no, they industry. all live in the valley. They don't live in the city. Some of them live in the city. There's but... enough. There's enough overlap. But you still think right, it's part of the Bay Area. There's some. There's some of these guys in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see a tech industry negative effect, like a negative effect on the tech industry because of what's happening in San Francisco, or you think San Francisco is totally different because the real issue is like the real innovations in Silicon Valley and San Francisco can die mm-hmm. on its own and not affect the tech industry? Well, I'll go down to San Jose, like they've yeah. been doing for twenty years. You know that's. That's the interesting thing is that you would have thought that the city fathers in San Francisco would have their act together enough to just make sure that the city stayed reasonably nice and didn't completely careen out of control because you're, you're seeing commercial assets are trading at 50 cents on the dollar. Um, and what that would means. You buy one? Would you buy one at 50 cents on the dollar or you'd buy it at like oh. two cents on the dollar? No, I wouldn't because again, you have to look at the use of the building. And say, are, are tenants using the building? Do they want to? What does the rent roll look like compared to two years ago? Did they have to make concessions to tenants right. to keep them? You know, look at um, workforce, which is one of the biggest tenants in San Francisco. Right. If they pull out of there, and they probably should, um, they could easily go out to the valley. It's going to be expensive. But, you know, in terms of security for your people, I think they almost have to. Um, I do a lot of stuff with the mortgage bankers. We gotta be very careful about we where we do. We were just in Philadelphia. Philly is a nightmare downtown. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> you know, people had to fight their way through angry crowds to get to the hotel. Oh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm just I'm just sitting here at home in the burbs, right? It's a very different I, experience. You see no, I did here. the same. We live in Westchester now. I live at the top of Westchester County. When we moved out of New York City, we cut our expenses by two thirds. There is no way I can make New York City affordable, guys. I'm sorry. Everybody who talks about that is crazy because the cost to build, the cost to maintain assets in that city is so, so expensive. If you're a billionaire, New York City is perfectly affordable. And it's well, they're not affected. Yeah. But the everyday person, I mean, think about if your boss decided to take offices over in Hudson Yards. 
And, uh, you know, they disregarded my old friend, Dale Hemmendinger, a great real estate developer in New York, who wanted to knock down the Javits Center and build the new convention center closer to the Penn Station, right? But right, no. It's just far enough away that it's hard to get there. It's just oh my annoying God. enough to get There's no yeah. transportation. Yeah. People are going to walk three avenues to get to work in January. Yeah, it's a pain. That's great. So, but that's the market economy. You know, things are not done in a rational way. Robert Moses is dead. He used to uh, order everything in New York, but we don't have a Robert Moses anymore. Yeah, too much gunked up stuff. Can't get anything done. You mentioned that. You mentioned that New York Times lawsuit mm. against. I guess it was. Open, it must have been OpenAI. The you know, why? Why? Why does that excite you? What's your thought process on that? Well, that's their content. All of these AI guys think that the world is free for them to turn their computers on. I I th- I hope the Times cleans their clock. I really do. The guys at Microsoft, all of these arrogant assholes, they, they need to realize they serve their customers, not the other way around. And the Times owns that content. I hope they can monetize this claim. In fact, I may volunteer to help them. I used to collect judgments years ago. It's great fun going into court and whacking somebody. Have you ever looked up your own books if you go into chat GPT? And in terms of if you ask um, it to summarize your book, I've done that. I did this. I, I had a friend who was on it. He yeah. was an author. And I said, you know, because he didn't know about how AI worked. I said, hey, look, you can just go and ask them questions about your book. Yeah. And it'll tell you stuff about your book, right? Yeah. So it clearly has read it. It's clearly read the book and is telling people stuff about the book and you're not getting a dime from it. So you should ask it. Say, hey, summarize right. Chris Whalen's book, da-da-da-da-da, and see what it says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn one of my family members uh, loose who used to collect copyright. It's a right, lot of fun. Exactly. You know, when you catch somebody with a copyright violation in the U.S., they're done. You just send them a letter, say, write me yeah. a check. Write me a check. How, how much would you ask? If you see it's, if they're referencing your book, how much is the check you're asking for? Each uh, each instance of use, I believe, is $250,000. And how do you measure instances of use? Right? I was is it just pondering that. I don't know. We're going to yeah. have to do some work on this. Or you should start hitting it up like 100 times. <laughs> they have 100 instances. Well, look, I create content. You know, you work with people who create content. You create content, Eric. And... A whole, that's all you got. It's yeah. all we got. That's right. But you want you wonder if it's from the Google perspective where Google, they were taking all, I mean, there was links. It was different. So they were sending you to the link, but it was just, hey, the world is available to us for us to link to. And then I think these guys took it one step further. Oh, why link to it? We can just keep it ourselves. And oh, in absolutely. That perspective. It's all about advertising. But, you know, back to your uh, earlier question, I'm not, uh, I'm actually fairly bullish about the coming year. I think the economy is not even going to bounce. It's going to just keep floating along. I think home prices will soar, as we wrote this week. Uh, and that's not good. But, you know, the Fed doesn't care about home prices when it comes to inflation. So uh... Because they ignore it, right? Their version of inflation is like, okay, take inflation that you as a person face and we'll subtract out 10 things that are hugely important to it. Yeah. And we'll focus on this little narrow piece of it. And then we'll do policy based but on that. That's one of the things that happened to the Fed, not just after 2008, but even way before that, is they became much more of a cheerleader for the Treasury. And they kept trying to say, oh, well, inflation's low. We don't have to worry about budget deficits. No, inflation's not low, guys. Inflation's been double digits for a long time, if you include housing and food and healthcare and energy. Stuff people have to buy. Yes. (laughs) And so the agency's credibility is limited, but there's such a large uh, Sanhedrin of economists 
who are sitting there cheering for them and hoping to get jobs at the Fed, of course, um, that, you know, it's hard to get to the truth. And most members of Congress are incapable of even discussing this stuff. I remember Henry B. Gonzalez, one of my favorite uh, members of Congress. He understood, you know, he was a child of garment workers from Laredo, Texas, uh, but he understood the Fed very well. But we, we don't have too many people like that today. No, no. So then, you know, end, end with uh, my last question. We'd like to end with a perspective on this year. If you had to put your money somewhere, let's say someone watching is saying, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be doing bank preferreds. I'm not an expert like Chris is. I'm just sort of a regular investor. Would you, what would you say? Is like, is it just S&P? Is it NASDAQ ETFs? Is it, is it, do you want some T-bills here? Because it probably long-term, long-term bonds, you probably don't want to mess with those because those got, might get creamed over time. Where does someone hmm. with kind of a relative sense of, using the basic instruments, the most common instruments, where would you suggest they put their money? Well, if you're trying to lock in yields going out three, four, five years in either treasuries or agencies, and if you like that mid-single digit yield, then you can go get some of that now. I think the stocks generally, the high growth sectors, including tech, are going to shake off all the concerns and the China worries and everything else, and they're going to keep running, in, in my view. Uh, financials, I think we're going to probably retreat a bit because we're still worried about credit and we have to make sure, you know, ensure that people don't uh, believe that, but that's going to take a while. I think that's why they haven't gone up more, frankly. They kind of petered out at the beginning of December. But for the rest of the economy, I mean, you can see that autos are down a bit. It's, it's clearly slowed, but not that much. I don't see a recession on the horizon. So you don't see a soft landing, hard landing, any landing. You just see it's just no. keep... Okay. The only thing I worry about, Eric, is because of the volatility we've seen in markets and in many economic indicators over the past few years, I worry that we may see a sudden jump, for example, in credit card defaults quarter to quarter. And that would then indicate that we're going to see uh, even higher credit costs next year. I'll give you an example. If you look at the bottom 20% of FHA borrowers, which are typically lower income households, first-time home buyers, that sort of thing, much higher default rates. They're in the mid-teens. The FHA default rate's about 9% today, which is not unusual. It's kind of average, really. But once it gets up in the double digits, that's when the alarm bells start going off because that indicates that the better credits above it are going to also get into trouble over time. So, you know, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. I also think it's a part of the population that got kicked around badly during COVID. And so they're still having credit trouble. But we've got less than half a million people in the U.S. today that are going through forbearance. So that basically unwound. Uh, and that's a pretty, pretty positive indicator. So you don't worry about the idea like, oh, you know, every time there's a yield curve inversion, we always see a recession. You think we could no, invert no. and no, not those, those indicators went bye-bye after 2008. You know, the most oh, okay. interesting indicator I always point people to is if you look at the treasury yield curve, and then you layer dollar swaps on top of it. The swaps curve trades out to 50 years. What happened is that outside of seven years, it trades below treasury yields. What does that mean? It means there's a lot of demand for dollars out there. I see. And as long as that's the case, as long as we don't have to pay a premium to do fixed floating swaps in dollars, especially long term, um, that's a pretty positive indicator for the US economy. If it flips around again, and it goes back to the way it was before 2008, I would worry. Okay. This is great. Where, 
where can people find more of your stuff? Like at the website, the, the social media, tell us where everyone can find more of you. Uh, I published the Institutional Risk Analyst, which is uh, an old blog we created in 2003, myself and Dennis Santiago. And then uh, I wrote a column for National Mortgage News, which is great fun. And I'm on uh, X or Twitter at rcwhalen.com. We have great fun. The comments for the blog, by the way, are on Twitter. So uh, come and come and visit. Come and visit. Chris, I really appreciate the time. Good luck. I know you're yep, working happy on New Basel 3 Endgame. <laughs> oh, please. Get back to that yes. when we're done here. I'm going to the beach. I'll see you soon. See you soon. Enjoy. Enjoy, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks again to my guest today, Chris Whalen. And thank you all for watching and joining us here on Wealthy. And if you like this content, please make sure to like, subscribe, share, forward, comment. All of those things really help get this out there to as many people as possible. And of course, if you're trying to figure out your family's finances, your investments, you can go to Wealthion.com. There's a short form there. We can connect you with investment professionals that we endorse, that we vetted. If you want to have a conversation, that's great. There's no obligation. There's no cost. There's no commitment. You can just have the conversation, see if they're right for you. That's, again, at Wealthion.com. It's a free public service that we provide trying to help as many people as possible. And of course, you know, check out the show with Anthony Scaramucci, Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. It's a live call-in show. That's every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. And if you want to submit questions for that show, you can go to wealthion.com forward slash ask Anthony and he'll answer your questions on the program. Thanks again for watching Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.